All right. Well, good evening, everybody. How many uh, had handballs before uh, people join us for the supper before? Um, if you didn't, sorry, you missed out. It was great. Uh, you might have to like wake those people up, though, from their food coma throughout this thing. So uh, my name is Josh, and I'm one of the pastors here at Hope Ankeny. Uh, I'll be a pastor here for a little bit longer, just a few days, and then uh, I'm out of here. My wife and I are moving to uh, Georgia, but it's not about me. It's not about me. We're uh, talking about uh, the Passover. We're talking about Monday, Thursday. Uh, and so to get us in the mood, just to kind of remember, right? Just a few days ago, we were together celebrating uh, Palm Sunday, right? Isn't it fun to gather more often? And hopefully you'll be back. There's a service tomorrow for, to mark Good Friday. And then Easter service is the big uh, celebration of Jesus' resurrection from the dead, right? It's just great to be together as the church. Some of you are thinking... Yeah, sure. Uh-huh. Yeah. This great services. Okay. Just move along, Josh. Uh, I will. Okay. So this is what we did uh, last weekend, right? We celebrated uh, Palm Sunday, Jesus' entrance into Jerusalem. And everybody is excited about uh, Jesus being in Jerusalem, at least when it comes to John's gospel. The reason that he gives for this is because just a few verses earlier, John had brought this guy back, uh, Jesus had brought this guy back from the dead. He had raised Lazarus back to life. That's kind of a big deal, right? So all these crowds of people, they're coming to see this. also the time of the Passover, and so there's a lot of people in Jerusalem already. But, right, they come to see Jesus because I think these people, the crowds, they want to experience Jesus' miracles, his life, this, this person that they've been hearing so much about, this person they've witnessed bring people back to life, to have the power of life like that, to cast demons out of people, all of these different miracles that Jesus has performed, these people want to experience that for themselves. So they're really excited to see Jesus. They gather together. They uh, praise him as he comes into town. But then pretty soon after, the mood changes. And there's this different feeling in the air. The tide of public opinion turns. And John's gospel, it picks up on this vibe, and this is what it says. In John chapter 13, in verse 1, before the Passover celebration, Jesus knew that his hour had come to leave this world and return to his Father. Right? The party, the celebration, the triumphal entry, all of that was over, and now in its place, death was imminent. Did you hear the words of the song that Caleb was singing? And if we should die tonight, we should all die together. Raise a glass of wine for the last time. And see, that's what Jesus was wanting to do. He was, in all four of the gospel accounts, uh, we hear that Jesus shared a meal with his disciples uh, the night before, the time, uh, right before his death. And so he shares this meal. And in Matthew, Mark, and Luke, the context of this meal is the Passover celebration. So just a little bit of context here, a little bit of history, right? The Passover, uh, open up your Bibles to Exodus chapter two, 12, Exodus chapter 12. We're going all the way back, almost to the beginning, the second book of the Bible. So in Exodus 12, uh, it tells the story of the first Passover celebration. And it is this celebration. It seems kind of weird because we're talking about celebration, but there's like blood on the screen. And if you don't know much about this yet, hold on, I'll explain. And it, it's still pretty graphic, um, Okay, so way back in the book of Exodus, the people of Israel, God's chosen people, they're right now in slavery in the land of Egypt. Uh, God has promised that the people of Israel were going to become this great nation, and yet right now they're under the weight of slavery. It's kind of hard to be a great nation when you're slaves. 
in a foreign land. And so God finally makes good on this promise, and he uh, comes to this guy named Moses, and he says, you're going to go to Pharaoh and tell him to let my people go. And so Moses tries, he goes to Pharaoh and says, let my people go, and Pharaoh's like, yeah, no. And so God tells Moses, okay, I'm going to send some plagues, and hopefully some of these things are going to change Pharaoh's mind. But Pharaoh remains steadfast. He's not going to let the people of Israel go. So God sends this one final plague, this 10th plague. And in this plague, the angel of the Lord is going to come and is going to kill off the firstborn son of every Egyptian household. And the firstborn male animal, too. Ladies, good news for you, right? There we go. For once in the Bible, it turns out good for the ladies. Um, sorry. I'm going to just keep going. Okay. So this is what happens. I'll just read from the Bible. How about that? Sound good? Okay. Exodus chapter 12, starting in verse 12. You can follow along with me. This is verse 13. So starting in verse 12. On that night, I will pass through the land of Egypt and strike down every firstborn son and firstborn male animal in the land of Egypt. I will execute judgment against all the gods of Egypt, for I am the Lord. But the blood on the doorposts will serve as a sign, marking the houses where you are staying, talking to the people of Israel. When I see the blood, I will pass over you. This plague of death will not touch you when I strike the land of Egypt. By the blood of these lambs, it's a sign that allows the angel of the Lord to pass over these houses. By the blood of the lamb, the people of Israel are delivered from death. So for generations, the Jewish people, they reenact this experience. And after a time, it becomes a ritualized thing. And so in Jesus' day, this is happening, and they continue to celebrate the Passover. And what would happen is on the day of preparation for the Passover, uh, they would slaughter lambs still, but it would happen in the temple. And then at night, they would share a meal together, a Passover meal. And so this is where we find uh, the gospel accounts, Matthew, Mark, and Luke. They're talking about this. This is what happens. This is uh, Mark chapter 14. You can also find it in Matthew and Luke. Basically, this same exact thing. This is what happens. On the first day of the festival of unleavened bread, when the Passover lamb is sacrificed, pay attention to that, Jesus' disciples asked him, where do you want us to go to prepare the Passover meal for you? The Passover, oh, go back one. It's like I touched it and oof, that'd be awesome. The Passover lamb is sacrificed, right? That happens before the people celebrate the Passover meal. Jesus' disciples do, okay? So this is kind of uh, the, the summary of what happens. Stay with me. Next slide now. Okay, so in Matthew, Mark, and Luke, just kind of placeholder here. And then we've got the day of preparation and Passover meal with the disciples. And then after that, Jesus has his trial and his crucifixion. So the lambs are slaughtered in the temple here, and then the Passover meal happens, and then the trial and the crucifixion of Jesus. Everybody, everybody with me? Hold on. You've, you've got just a little bit longer. If you made it this far, I promise. I promise. The best part is coming still. Okay, so that's what's happening uh, in Matthew, Mark, and Luke. They celebrate the Passover meal together, and then Jesus is crucified. But in John's gospel, a different story plays out. Jesus still shares this, a last supper with his disciples, right? 
Uh, and in that meal, right, he shares this, uh, he washes the disciples' feet, he reminds the disciples what it's going to look like to follow in his footsteps. But this is what happens. This is how it starts, right? John chapter 13. This is when that meal takes place. Before the Passover celebration, Jesus knew that his hour had come to leave this world and return to his Father. And when it was time for supper, they ate together. So Jesus shares this last supper with his disciples, but it's before the Passover meal. Because here's what happens next in John's gospel. A little bit ahead, right? They have this meal and Jesus says a lot of beautiful things as reminders to his disciples. And then in John chapter 19, we get to the crucifixion. And now it was about noon on the day of preparation for the Passover. And Pilate said to the people, look, here is your king. Jesus is on trial. And the people say, away with him, away with him, crucify him. On the day of preparation for the Passover, Jesus is crucified. Okay, here we go. Jesus, uh, crucified is when Jesus was nailed to a tree. It's a way that they um, killed people back in the day. Very brutal, very uh, graphic and nasty, like all death is, but especially that. Okay, so... Good question. Matthew, Mark, and Luke, this is kind of what happened, right? Placeholder day, got the day of preparation, Passover meal after. But John's gospel is kind of different. Everything moves up one day. Meal with the disciples, day of preparation, the same time as the crucifixion. And then the Passover meal happens after. Okay, so why are we talking about this? Doesn't this just kind of poke holes in uh, the whole Jesus story? Like, doesn't this actually kind of call into question the entire accuracy of the gospel accounts? Uh, why would we talk about this? And we should just like sweep this under the rug and keep going. But I honestly think, right, if you have four eyewitnesses to any kind of event, anything that happens... Are you going to expect four exactly the same stories with all the same details? Are you going to expect those four people to have seen and experienced the event that unfolded in front of their eyes differently, depending on their circumstances, depending on what was important to them in their life? And see, that's what's happening in the gospel stories. Everything's playing out, and there's similarities in each one of the Gospels, and there's differences. Don't get me wrong. The same good news, the same Gospel message is proclaimed in all four Gospels. Without a doubt, Jesus uh, is born, comes to earth. God comes to earth, lives this life, shows us the way to life, and he dies, but he doesn't stay dead. He's raised to life on the third day. Every gospel account has that big picture story, but there are some differences. As you would expect from four different authors writing to four different audiences. Okay. Also, just, I don't know, trivia for you. John's gospel, the last gospel written down. So, you know, there's the possibility that John, uh, it was just written down after so many years, possibly as much as 60 years after the events took place, that maybe it's just because, you know, the story had kind of gotten shifted along the time. But I think more likely it's because John was trying to point out something different. And in John's poetic, flowery, metaphorical way, that's what he does. 
right? Think about uh, the birth narrative, right? Jesus being born in, in Matthew and in Luke. You hear about uh, Mary and Joseph, and they travel to Bethlehem, and there's no room in the inn, and you hear all of that, right? That's this, like, like reporter story of what happened. But John's gospel is different. Mark just kind of speeds through the whole thing. He doesn't think that's necessarily important to the facts of the story. But John, this is what happens, right? This is how John talks about the birth narrative, because it's Nice and flowery and poetic, right? In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. All things came into being through him, right? And the Word became flesh and made his dwelling place among us. The Word became flesh, moved into the neighborhood, as one translation puts it. That's the flowery, poetic way to talk about uh, Jesus' birth, right? And that's who John is. That's the way that he writes his gospel account. It's this flowery, poetic, metaphorical kind of thing, still pointing to a very real reality about Jesus' life. Okay, so definitely wake the person up next to you if you haven't already, and because uh, this is where it really gets good. Everybody here? Everybody with me? Maybe? Maybe not? Okay, it's fine. I'll be up for, for a little bit longer, it's fine. Uh, okay, so here's the thing that I think John is trying to accomplish, try, pushing everything up a day, right? He's making this point, because if Jesus is crucified on the same day that the lamb for the Passover is slaughtered in the temple, what does that mean? Jesus is crucified on the same day that the lamb is slaughtered in the temple. Remember what the lamb was all about? Right? It's the blood of the lamb delivered the people of Israel from death. The blood of the lamb delivered the people of Israel from death. And I think what John is saying is in the same way, this is what's happening with Jesus. Jesus is this Passover lamb. It's no accident that at the beginning of John's gospel, in John chapter 1, verse 29, what we heard read uh, today by the First Communion uh, kids, behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world, right? This is uh, John the Baptist speaking, and he's in the wilderness with some of his followers, and Jesus comes walking by, and John the Baptist, he points to Jesus and he says this, behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world, In the same way that the Passover lamb delivered the people from death, Jesus is now this lamb who delivers people from death into life. And not just this select group of people, but the entire world. Just as the angel of the Lord had passed over the people of Israel, Delivered them from death by the blood of the Lamb, so too has Jesus laid down his life to deliver all of us from sin and suffering and evil and brokenness and death. Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. And I could end there. I could end there because actually in my uh, new church in uh, near Atlanta, I've got like 15 minutes for the sermon. So it would basically be done by this point. So you can come down and visit any time. It'll be nice, you know. Uh, but we're going to keep going because this is hope and this is my last uh, sermon to preach. So we might be going for a while, you know, just get, no, I'm just kidding. Not too much longer.
Okay, so you've got this context for the Lamb of God. I want to talk about one more thing, and I think it really makes a lot of difference. I want to talk about this word, world. Cosmos. Everybody say cosmos. Okay, so cosmos, I mean, you can probably get from that, right? Like cosmic, uh, universal, all-encompassing. I think a lot of the time, when we talk about the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world... We just kind of focus on this part. We talk about the Lamb of God who takes away sins, and we talk about it as though like it's just an individual thing, right? Jesus died for my sin. And that's true. But it's not as individualistic as I think sometimes we make it. We make it this private, personal transaction. But remember, unlike that first Passover, where the good news and the deliverance from death was only for this select group of people, for the people of Israel. Jesus, the Lamb of God, takes away the sins, delivers the entire world from death, and ushers them into life. It's not just an individual thing. It's a cosmic thing. It's a communal thing. Over the last, uh, well, you know, this year, the theme at Hope uh, in 2017 is to be known. And we're talking about community and the importance of community and knowing God, knowing one another. So we've been uh, mentioned quite a few times, this guy Dietrich Bonhoeffer. Uh, he's a German Lutheran theologian and pastor, uh, lived before and during World War II. And he wrote a lot on community, wrote a lot on discipleship, what it means to follow after Jesus. And he said this about sin in the individual, and I think this is uh, important to hear. Sin demands to have a man by himself. It withdraws him from the community. Sin wants him to remain unknown. See, sin is isolation. Sin is separation from God, but it's also separation from one another. And the effects of sin, the effects of the brokenness of this world, right, it is that disconnection. And when I think about that disconnection, when I think about isolation, when I think about the brokenness of this world, I think about this kind of picture. Okay, why do I think about this? What is this? Lunchroom, right? Okay, does anybody else have like a visceral reaction when you see the lunchroom of a school where like your palms start to sweat and you get nervous because... Oh, it's just, I mean, and look how full. There's like no, okay, there's one like awkward table to sit by yourself, but otherwise like it's packed and maybe no one else's uh, high school and middle school experience was like that. And it was only because I was in band that, uh, you know, I, no, it was just like, right, I had people to sit with. I had some friends, a few, uh, but like the first day of school, do you remember that? And you're just trying to learn new things and you don't know who has what lunch period. And so you're trying to figure out, okay, where are people going to be? Am I going to be all by myself and awkwardly sitting someplace? Right? And you just feel isolated. You feel separated. You feel disconnected. This is what sin is lived out. Isolation, separation, disconnected from God and from each other. It's the effect of sin. And I think that's a pretty universal experience for us. There's a few people uh, in a high school in Florida. I heard about this story, right? Where, of course, Florida. It's, some good things can come from Florida, okay? That's true. Yay. 
Um, so there's a story uh, on CBS News about these kids that were trying to do something different, that were understanding this, the power and the, the hurt of being isolated at lunch, and so they wanted to live in a different way to make a new reality, and so they did this. Take a look at this story. If sin is isolation, separation from God and from one another, and if Jesus is the Lamb of God, who takes away the sin of the world, then community should be the outcome for everyone who comes in contact with Jesus. Let me say that again, because I think that's important. That basically summarizes the whole thing. If you don't hear anything else, well, I don't know, try to grab all of this, right? Sin, and is, sin is isolation and separation from God and from one another. And if Jesus is the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world, then community should be the outcome for everyone who comes in contact with Jesus. Yes, in John's gospel, Jesus is the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. But Jesus, also in John's gospel, just as importantly, is the Good Shepherd. Right? One of the I Am statements that we talked about earlier uh, this year. I am the good shepherd. I know my sheep and they know me. Jesus' life and his ministry, it was not just about being born so that one day he could die on the cross and forgive our sin. It was not only about that. Jesus came to live and show us how to live, show us the way to life. Far too often in the Christian world, we focus so solely on Jesus' death. Even on Christmas sometimes, when we're celebrating Jesus' life, God coming to earth in this little baby, we start talking about the end of the story. And yes, we know the end of the story, but how incredible is it that the God of the universe lowered himself to the point of being this slave who came as this humble kid and grew up and then brought this ragtag group of people who nobody thought would do anything good in their entire life. He brought them together. He said, you belong. I am the good shepherd. Come follow me. I'll show you the way to a real, rich, and satisfying life. And yes, there's also really good news because I am the lamb of the world. I am the lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. God is both. God in Jesus is both the lamb of God. And the good shepherd. See, he's the lamb that frees us from death so that we can follow the shepherd into life. And what kind of life does Jesus call us to? It's the mission of this church to reach out to the world around us and share the everlasting love of Jesus Christ. It's to reach out And share Jesus' love in such a way the community is fostered, the community is created. I mean, just look at Jesus' life. Isn't that what happened? Jesus going along and he invites this ragtag group together and then he keeps inviting people in. Everybody that nobody else thought should be invited into this club. He takes all the outsiders and he says, yeah, you belong in here. He takes all the sinners and the tax collectors, the prostitutes, all of these bad people by societal terms, and he says, no, you belong right here too. You belong in this thing that I am up to because your goodness doesn't come from yourself. 
You're not in this group because of who you are. You're in this group because of who I am, because of who my Father is. He sent me to show you the way to life. He sent me to live and to die, but also to rise again. It wasn't the end of the story. We won't talk about that much because we'll get there on Easter, right? And it's not that we have to follow Jesus' example to get into heaven. It's not that we have to follow the good shepherd and be good enough on our own uh, terms, right? It's not that our good in our life has to outweigh our bad. It's none of that. Jesus is the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. He's taken care of that. We don't have to worry about that. And because we don't have to worry about that, because there's nothing that we can do about that, that's when it starts to get fun. Because all we get to do is love other people. We don't have to worry about anything else. We don't have to worry about where we're going to be spending eternity. We, we don't have to worry about any of that. God's got that all taken care of. So we can stop trying. We can focus on love. And if there is one thing that I would want to leave with you from my time here, if there is one thing that I would hope that you would remember, that you would strive towards, as a people, as a church, as a community, as individuals, as families. So you would be a people known for the way that you loved one another. That you loved people in such a reckless and a relentless way that strangers became brothers and sisters. That you would love people in such a reckless and relentless way that enemies become friends. That you would love people in such a way that the outsiders, the people forgotten about by everyone else, the people who think they're too messed up, too broken, too hurt, too lonely, to ever be accepted into any kind of community, that you would go after those people with all of your heart and your soul, and you would love them just like Jesus has loved you in this relentless in this reckless kind of way. And if that might seem like a daunting task for you, I've got good news, because it's really not that complicated. That kind of community, it can be created with one thing, with food. Is that good, good news? Anybody else? Anybody else feel that's good news, right? So here's the thing. Here's the reality. Sin it wants us to remain unknown. But see, it's at the table where we can become known. And that begins for us as followers of Jesus. That begins in this meal that he instituted when he shared together in this last supper with his disciples. And he washed their feet. He reminded them what it looks like to love and to serve. It's not about being high and mighty. It's not about enjoying your place of prestige up here. It's about getting down on your hands and your knees and serving one another. One of the things that I love that Pastor Richard Webb in West Des Moines, he talks about is that he thinks in heaven, it's not going to be some place where the streets, you know, where it's all just like sit back, relax, kick up, enjoy the beautiful gold pavement and everything. Heaven is going to be a place where Jesus comes and he says, come receive the joy of the master. Here's your basin, your pitcher, and your towel. Let's get started washing feet. Let's get started serving one another. 
It might sound disgusting to some of you, but hey, that's the good news of the kingdom of God. So get used to it. Sin wants us to remain unknown, but at the table, we can become known. And this is where it happens, first and foremost. It happens here as we gather together as the body of Christ, sharing this meal that Jesus instituted. Sharing bread and wine, his body and blood. Eat it, drink it, to remember me. To become what you receive. The body of Christ. It's what happened in the early church. In Acts chapter 2, we, we see this picture of what happened. These early Jesus followers, these people so on fire about what God is up to, that this is what they do. Acts chapter 2, starting in verse 46. But the people, they worshiped together at the temple each day. They met in homes for the Lord's Supper, and they shared their meals with great joy and generosity. And each day, the Lord added to their fellowship those who were being saved. They worshiped together. They met in homes for the Lord's Supper. They shared meals together. It's at the table that we become known. First here, as we celebrate the Lord's Supper together, as we celebrate communion, but then also as we go out into this world and we invite people to have dinner with us, to eat with us, to be in community with us. Maybe people that we know, maybe it's people that we don't know people that are easy to love and people that aren't so easy to love. But imagine what would happen if that's the kind of community that each of us and all of us together could become. A community that in this age of disconnection and isolation and kind of individualism, that we could put down some of the things that separate us and enjoy a meal together. Imagine what would happen. 